Please remain risen and receive these words from the Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning with the first verse. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Loving God, for the great gift of community and for your, your love, we do thank you. We're so grateful for this space in which we can gather together and by your grace be joined into a beautiful, beautiful offering of your love and mercy, allowing your spirit to work within and through us. And in this moment, O oh God, I pray that your spirit would speak through me a word that will bless your people. I pray it trusting in your mercy and grace in my life. Bless us now, we pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God gave us people to love and things to use. But the human family has proven over the centuries that we have a proclivity not to love people and use things, but to love things and to use people. Best I can tell, this truth is at the heart of our ridiculously perplexing gospel passage. This is one of those that I encourage you, if you desire, to actually take out the Bible, either on your phone or in the pew that is available, because this is a rough one, y'all, and you might want to refer back. 
I read a number of commentaries trying to sort out what might be going on in the parable. One commentator suggested that, lo and behold, the manager in the story is not the weasel he is often portrayed as, but rather was being wrongfully accused by his boss, was being slandered. This interpretation is based on, of course, a Greek word, uh, diablethe, a word that can mean to bring charges against, to accuse, or to slander. The same scholar posits that the Greek word translated here, squandering, diaskorpizone, actually means scattering to the wind, and that it has roots in the sowing of seed. That commentator suggests that the manager was not dishonest, but was rather wisely investing or diversifying the master's stuff, making allies even for his rich boss, and had simply been misunderstood and therefore slandered. Interesting take, right? Gives us a kind of different way of thinking about the text. I'm not sure what I think about this interpretation. I tend to think it is a very smart and creative attempt to make the praise of the manager in the parable and in the following sayings make sense. Otherwise, why would this dishonest person be getting all this praise? So it's a very interesting take. Another commentator says this, quote, to try to understand this parable and the attached sayings in the context of Luke's narrative world, we need a mini course on the economics of Roman-occupied Galilee in the first century. She goes on to explain, I'm not going to tell you everything she says, but she goes on to explain, rich landlords and rulers were loan sharks. Using exorbitant interest rates to amass more land and to disinherit peasants of their family land in direct violation of the biblical covenantal law. The rich man or lord, in verses 3 and 8, along with his steward or debt collector, were both exploiting desperate peasants. Jesus' hearers, this scholar suggests, would know that the debt contracts included exorbitant interest hidden from illiterate peasants. She suggests analogies that maybe you could already think of, things such as high-interest student loans. That's been getting a little play lately. Or predatory payday loans or harsh austerity measures imposed on countries whose citizens had no role in agreeing to the debt. And she finishes by saying, when the manager reduced the payments, 
He may have been simply forgiving his own cut of the interest, or he may have been doing what the law of God commands, namely, forgiving all the hidden interest in the contracts. That's a very different perspective from the earlier interpretation, also interesting and helpful. It is consistent with the emphasis on economic justice throughout the Gospel of Luke, and it provides some clarity about the dynamics of the parable itself, what's going on in this sort of contractual situation. But it still doesn't help, at least not me, it doesn't really help explain some of those pesky sayings that follow. And let me assure you, there are many other interpretations of this difficult text to ponder. A lot of scholars suggest that this is just one of those ones where we have to say, we don't really know what this means. (laughs) I'm not making that up. So even though the follow-up sayings to the parable are full of seeming contradictions that I certainly will not be able to untangle, all of this talk in those sayings about dishonest wealth captured my attention. How can you be faithful with dishonest wealth? Well, it occurs to me in thinking and praying about this that many of us, you've told me, work in contexts that regularly place us in ethical tension with the values of Jesus that we seek to emulate. I've heard some say that it's hard to be Christian and work in politics. It's hard to be Christian and work in some areas of the law. It's hard to be Christian and work in some areas of corporate banking or even accounting where you see the loopholes and the tricks that get played by those with lots of wealth. Perhaps we might understand the sayings about being faithful with dishonest wealth as seeking to live out our values even in a sinful System. Truth is, we all live in a web of interconnected sinful systems. And we participate in those systems, whether we work in an industry that knowingly does harm or not. For example, even if we try, really try, to purchase things that we need to sustain our lives with sustainably made products that don't rely on animal testing or child labor or any other harmful use of people and creation in order to produce more things, even if we try not to purchase those things, we still do. There's absolutely no way to get around it. Something that we purchase will have been touched by some harmful practice along the way, almost all of them. Another example, 
I know that I have much of what I have through my family's inheritance over the years of land and its bounty. I know that siblings in this country, the native peoples of this land and later African Americans, to name just two, have had their lands stolen by lies, by manipulation, by threat and force, creating for many a struggle over generations to recover and find the economic security that I have always simply had. I know that various macro and micro economic policies exist that, in essence, steal land and homes from the poor, disrupt established communities, and separate families and networks of support through gentrification. These realities and more, of course, are not named as I've just named them in our text today, but they are implied. Perhaps to be faithful within these sinful systems filled with dishonest wealth is to be aware of them first and foremost, to acknowledge that they're real, to resist mindless complicity, to be honest about our own place within the system, and to do anything we can to care for our neighbor, to make the best choices that we can, to dismantle the systems that do harm in whatever way we might have power to do so. This is so central to what it means to practice sacred resistance. It's where the rubber hits the road. Jesus ends his uh, teaching here with a completely, thankfully, completely straightforward word in any language. He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth, by the way, it's a word, it's a word, this whole teaching is a word about what God we love most, what God we love most. If you love mammon, which, by the way, is the old word, the specific word for the God of wealth, the idol, if you love mammon, more than you love the God of mercy and liberation and love, then you will serve that God. You will be trained in the ways of that God. You will be trained to love things and to use people. You'll use people to get more money, more power, more things. I want to know if... if I'm going to do a thing that they do sometimes in other churches where I say, is there anybody out there who knows what I am talking about today? (laughs) This is alive and well. The God of mammon is alive and well. This is the primary God. This is the primary God of our culture. 
I don't want to, I don't want to mince the words here. And the gospel is calling us to something else, is challenging and pushing against the God who would call us to use people to get more things. It's a straightforward word. And if you love the God of mammon, then you will be using people to get more things in one way or another. But if you love the God who has given us one another and this beautiful earth with all its creatures to love and to tend, then you serve that God. You will be trained in the ways of that God. You will learn to love people, to be encouraged and comforted by the earth's creatures. and to use things for good. To use things, money, goods, time, power, skill, in thoughtful, just ways that assure that all God's beloved children have enough. And that the bounty of creation is tended well. And you'll try to do that even when you know that the system within which you live, move, and have your being is broken, corrupt, and unjust, because you know that that system is only a small little thing in the light of God's greater being in which we truly live, move, and have our being. I often remind us that congregational life, this, this, Mix this community and all the ways that we're connected is the place we get to learn and to practice ways of being in community and relationship that run counter to the cult of wealth and power. It's in this context of foundry that we get to practice loving people and using things instead of the other way around. It's in this context that we can practice fearless generosity instead of fearful withholding, where we can practice holding our tongue (laughs) instead of engaging in slander or talking ugly about others, where we can practice patience when things don't go like we want them to go or as quickly as we want them to go. It's where we can practice lifting others up and encouraging them and letting others lift us up and encourage us, where we can try new things that move us out of our comfort zone in order to care for the needs of others instead of sitting back or hanging around on the sideline waiting for someone to come and figure out what my needs are so that they can get met. Here's where we practice using our skills, bringing ourselves, offering our lives as a gift to build up this congregation, those within it, and all around it. It's also in this context that we bring our collective power to bear on the larger issues of economic justice and oppression in our city and our nation and our world. 
You know, we were able to continue loving our neighbors even through the pandemic, through our missional partnerships, our friendship with organizations around the city. Our outward-facing work for racial justice and equity, affordable housing, an end to homelessness, immigrant support and justice, LGBTQIA equity and justice, and environmental justice continues through these partnerships, through engagement with the Washington Interfaith Network and Karesen and Pathways to Housing and Bread for the City and Miriam's Kitchen and Christ House and Reconciling Ministries Network and the Congregation Action Network and more. Our Foundry ID ministry continues to be a life-changing mission without which our neighbors who have lost their IDs would not have access to jobs, to housing, or to the resources and support of government help. And I lift all of this up today because I want us to understand that within the mosaic that is Foundry, we create spaces and ways for countless lives to be changed, ways for us to learn and practice how to love people concretely, to love our neighbors in the pews and in the streets. And none of us, of course, will be directly engaged in all the ways that that happens in and through Foundry, but that's part of the beauty of community in which all the unique pieces and Persons that we are, all of our unique beings come together, drawn together by God's grace to form a vision that can impact so many more than if it were all just separate pieces. And let me be clear, I'm not suggesting that we've got all the things sorted, all the pieces in place and a perfect, pristine vision to project to the world as though Foundry is the end-all, be-all, we got it all done. We never have it all done. We're always going on to perfection. Jesus knows how easy it is for us to end up bowing at the altar of the God of mammon. That's why Jesus talks about money and possessions so much in the gospel accounts. We can all very comfortably find ourselves putting other things ahead of loving the people and earth that God has given us to love. And we can so easily fall into habits that hurt others. So easily. Forgetting that we're called to love, to care, without fail. We always have things to practice. And so today, I'm doing a thing we haven't done in a minute. I'm going to give us a minute after the sermon. We're going to take a minute. And I want you to just call to mind a thing that you either want to let go because it's something that is maybe not healthy or life-giving or supportive to our shared life or to your relationships if you're not a regular part of Foundry, to your community wherever you are. What is something that you want to let go 
Or maybe there's something that you want to pick up today. Is there a practice that you want to to offer to change in order to encourage or build up? We all have things to practice. And so today I invite us to call those to mind and to offer them to God, kind of a recommitment to loving people and using things. If you want to, you can come to the altar rail and pray. Lay it down or pick it up, whatever you need to do. And we're just going to take a moment.